Well, we are in the middle of a series called Hmong American Idols. And, and we're in a part right now where we're talking about shared idols. We talked about a Hmong idol. We talked about an American idol, American idol of saving face. Excuse me, American idol of individualism, a Hmong idol of saving face. And then we're going to spend three weeks here, one last week, this week, and next, on some idols that both of our cultures share. So particularly last week we talked about money and this idol of money. I described money as a possessive God. It always wants more of you. So this, last week was money. This week is sex. Next week is power. Okay? And, and, I, and granted, I say sex, but really what I'm talking about here is love. The idol of love. It is so easy to make an idol out of love. I know I did. Um, so back in high school... Uh, I was a bit of a player back in high school, okay? I was kind of a player before the word player really existed. It's still referred to like basketball, okay? But so I went on a lot of dates. I dated a lot of girls um, and kind of dated them and dated and dumped. And, uh, and so, but there was one weekend, one weekend that really stuck out and sticks out and still does in my, in my mind now, okay? 30 years later, still uh, stuck in my head. And so this was one weekend. This for, for teenage Greg, this was a pretty good weekend. So Friday night, I, I went, on, went out to a movie, did, did a little in and out and a, a movie with, with a girl on Friday night. And then Saturday during the day, me and another girl went out to the beach, hung out at the beach for a little while. And then Saturday night, me and another girl went out to another movie. Now, I wasn't like... like going steady or anything with any of them, but I just ha I had three dates in two days. It was a good weekend for teenage Greg, okay? But things didn't always last that all well because Monday morning, I'm sitting at my locker, all happy with my, my, my weekend, and I'm sitting here at my locker, and, and I look down the hallway, and I see all three girls walking toward me. I didn't think these girls knew each other. And all of a sudden, I look down the hallway. They're coming forward and be like, oh no, I am in trouble. So somehow the story started to get around. Somehow these girls found each other and they were out for blood. <laughs> Needless to say, that was not a good Monday morning. <laughs> But you know, I, I knew I was in trouble, man, because they just yelled at me, and they and and it was it was kind of indicative of who I was in high school, and and looking back, I was kind of addicted to dating. I and I have to sort of acknowledge that I loved being loved, and that's part of why I went on so many dates. I loved being loved. So what about you? What's, what's your view of love? Now, see, the, when we worship an idol of love, when we make an idol out of love, we tend to make terrible decisions, as evidenced by teenage Greg. We tend to make terrible decisions. We will compromise any boundary we once held. We will rationalize any decision we make. We'll justify any course of action. And we'll hurt people that we say we love. 
So, so let me just kind of check in with you. Let me see if you've done any of this. You slept with someone even though you had decided you weren't going to. Or, or, or maybe early in your days, or maybe single folks right now, you're so desperate to date, you stay with someone who you know isn't good for you. Or your friends have told you isn't good for you. But you can't imagine not having them in your life. Or maybe for you married folks, you yell at your spouse. You curse at them. You insult them. You call them names all because they're not measuring up. Right or wrong is kind of irrelevant, but they're not measuring up. So you just unload on them. Those are all terrible decisions that can come out of making an idol of love. So maybe it's something in your past. Maybe you've got a story. You could come up and tell the, the high school story, the college story, the dating story. Or maybe, maybe you're in the middle of it right now. Maybe you are in the middle right now of a series of terrible decisions. And you've got friends who are worried about you. You've got friends who maybe have even spoke up. And you've ignored them. You've pushed them away. You've denied it. Maybe you're in the middle of being held in the grip of the idol of love. So what do we do? What do we do to get out, to break that grip of the idol of love? That's kind of the fundamental question, isn't it? Well, I'm really glad we don't have to answer that question. Because the Bible actually tells us a story of a guy and a gal who were pretty in love with being loved. They were pretty desperate to be loved. And they started single, they ended up married. So I'll, I'll first tell you about the guy, okay? His name was Jacob. He's in the Old Testament. He's one of the founders, one of the three founding called patriarchs of the Israelites, Jacob. Now, Jacob was a little shady. Jacob was, was especially in his earlier years, he was really shady. In fact, he was so shady that as a young man, he actually cheated. Oh, so first, he was the younger of two. His older brother was a guy by the name of Esau. Okay, so older brother Esau, younger brother Jacob. And just like, like Jewish culture is just like Hmong culture, where the oldest son gets a little more. The oldest son gets the car. The oldest son like, gets to go to college. Parents pay for that, and then everyone else has to pay for themselves. But in Jewish culture, it was, it was a, a double portion of an inheritance. They kind of got double everything else, everything that went on. That was the oldest son. Okay? Well, Jacob, his name actually means deceiver. He was a schemer. He was totally shady. So he actually cheated his brother out, and he lied to his dad. He, he tricked his dad into cheating his brother out of that double portion, that extra that the oldest son gets. So here's the younger son getting what the older son really should have because he tricked him. He deceived him. Okay? And now, so his brother, the older brother Esau, was furious. He, literally, he wanted to kill him. Like literally, not like, oh, I'm going to kill you and you're running down. No, no. He was actually going to take a sword. He wanted to kill his younger brother. So Jacob fled. He jumped ship and he ran. 
Okay? Probably a smart idea at that time. So, and he ran to his uncle's place, sort of in the, in the neighboring country, and he had an uncle named Laban through his mom's side. See, now the text even says that Jacob's dad loved Esau more. So he grew up, his entire life, he grew up knowing explicitly that his, his father said that he loved the older son more. Now the mom loved Jacob though. So when Jacob uh, hightailed and ran, he went to mom's family. So he went to his uncle, uh, uncle Laban. Went to the uncle Laban and started to work for him. And that's where our story picks up. Okay? So he's working for his uncle Laban. Uh, and this, this is out of Genesis 29. But before I get to the passage, I want to give credit to a book that I've been reading through this whole series. It's a book by a pastor, Tim Keller, from New York. Um, uh, it's called Counterfeit Gods. I've actually been reading th through this. It's been very helpful through this whole series. This talk especially... I loved the insights that he had into Jacob and this story. So some of what I'm going to be sharing is actually Tim Keller's. And I'm going to give him cre absolute credit where credit is due. Um, and I also want to give a shout out to my buddy Tucci who turned me on to this book a while back. Wonderful book, okay? So if, if this is interesting to you, I highly recommend Tim Keller's book, Counterfeit Gods, okay? So, um, so with that, let's read a little bit. This is Genesis 29. So if you'd like to read along, you can pull that up on your app or flip to it. It's Genesis 29, starting in verse 14. Okay, so again, Genesis 29, starting in verse 14. Okay. After Jacob stayed with him, referring to Laban, stayed with him for a whole month, Laban said to him, just because you are a relative of mine, should you work for me for nothing? Wouldn't you like your mom or dad to say that to you? Okay, when you're like helping with the restaurant or helping with farmer's market. Just because you're real, I should pay you. What a novel concept, okay? Should you work for me for nothing? Tell me what your wages should be. Now, at this point, the narrator takes a, makes a little aside, okay? And he, start, he talks about Laban's family. Here we go. Now, Laban had two daughters. The name of the older was Leah, and the name of the younger was Rachel, Leah had weak eyes, and Rachel had a lovely figure and was beautiful. Okay, so two sisters. One of them was beautiful. The other, well, maybe not so much. Weak eyes. That's a pretty strange phrase. Like she wore glasses. Like I have weak eyes. I need glasses. Okay, but that's not really what this phrase, this, this idiom, this Jewish phrase means. Weak eyes the way to know what this means is look at what it contrasts with. The contrast to weak eyes is not strong eyes. Not like eagle eyesight, no. The contrast to weak eyes is beauty. So we can kind of conclude from this, something was up with her eyes. Uh, maybe they were bulgy, maybe they were a little cross-eyed, maybe one kind of had a mind of its own. We don't really know, but what's very clear from this, in their family, there was a beautiful daughter and there was an ugly daughter. And that's pretty clear. And so one note, I, I, I want to make a comment here, particularly if you grew up being compared to the pretty one, be careful. You are especially susceptible to falling for this idol of love. 
Right? If you were the one who always got compared to the beautiful sister or the successful brother or the beautiful brother, who knows what your family was, okay? If that was you, be careful because you are especially susceptible, just like Leah, to falling for this idol of love. Okay, let's continue. Jacob was in love with Rachel and said, I'll work for you for seven years in return for your younger daughter, Rachel. Okay, now all of you are thinking, aw, how romantic. No, that is not romantic. That is messed up. <laughs> Let me explain this to you, okay? He was willing to pay three times a typical dowry. Okay? If Jacob was Hmong today, he would have walked into the negotiation and plunked down 15 to 20 grand. Boom! On the table. I want your daughter. <laughs> Meanwhile, the dad's like, okay. <laughs> Sucker. <laughs> okay? Seriously, this was not an act of love. This was an act of desperation. This was not an act of love. This was desperation. You ever go into a negotiation and offer three times list price? You either really want that thing or you're not too bright. So this was an act of death. This was his first act of desperation, but it wasn't his last. All right, so, so let's see how Laban responded. Laban said, it is better that I give her to you than some other man. Notice, like, Jacob should have been a little worried right there. Catch Laban's answer. He didn't actually say yes. You see that? <laughs> he kind of beat around the bush. And that's going to come back to bite Jacob on the tail in a little bit. Okay? So Jacob served seven years to get Rachel but they seemed like only a few days to him because of his absolute obsession. I mean, I mean, his love for her. Okay? <laughs> Jacob was an obsessed man. Right? Continue. Then Jacob said to Laban, so after seven years, give me my wife. My time is complete. I want to make love to her. Okay, all of a sudden this turned like to a light R heavy PG-13 here. So I want you to just imagine this. Mong negotiation, okay? You, you, you got your team, you got your crew, they got their crew. You go into the house, you plunk down $20,000 cash on the table and say to her dad, now give her to me, I want to have sex. <laughs> Can you imagine that? <laughs> Just how inappropriate, how rude, how base of a statement that would be. But that's exactly what Jacob did. That's his obsessed mistake number two. This was not, yeah, he was patient. He waited seven years, but by the end of it, he was not waiting any longer. <laughs> I'd be afraid, I'd, I'd get out quickly because who knows where they would start, Okay. So now, so imagine, it is just inconceivable that a young man coming to ask for the hand of your daughter would say that. But he did. Okay. So let's go to the wedding. So Laban brought together all the people of the place and gave a feast. 
incidentally, Jewish weddings, the wedding feast actually lasted seven days. The bride and groom were there for the first one. They went off, and then they actually had sex, okay? But everyone else kept partying for six more days. Okay? You thought Hmong funerals were tough, okay? Seven days of feast. So Laban brought together all the people of the place and gave a feast. But when evening came, he took his daughter Leah and brought her to Jacob. And Jacob made love to her. Okay? So now, remember, Jacob, his name was Deceiver, but now Laban pulled the switch. The deceiver got deceived. Because, see, in, in, in Jewish weddings, the bride actually remained veiled the entire day. Like, imagine traveling from your house to, to the guy's house, veiled the whole time. Even during the wedding, veiled the whole time. So, so she was veiled. You did not see what was under the veil. And then, to make matters worse, you can kind of read into the context here that by evening, Jacob had a wife with a veil, and he was completely drunk. Because that's usually what happened at wedding feasts. And so, what does a drunk guy do with a woman in her bed <laughs> on his wedding night? They have sex. So Laban pulled the switch. So let's see what happens the next morning. When morning came, there was Leah. <gasps> Can you imagine that? He wakes up a little, wakes up a little hungover and looks over, and all of a sudden, that is not the girl he worked seven years for. That is not the girl he obsessed over. That is not the girl that he believed would solve all of his problems. It wasn't. Rachel. It was Leah. So Jacob said to Leah, What have you done to me? I served you for Rachel, didn't I? Why have you deceived me? Incidentally, that's actually the exact question that his dad asked him when Jacob tricked him, when he deceived him out of his brother's birthright. So at night, he thought he was going to bed with Rachel. In the morning, he woke up. It was Leah. At night, he thought he had what he had always dreamed of. In the morning, he was disappointed. At night, he said, now I've got Rachel. Everything will be okay now. But in the morning, it wasn't okay. And that, that kind of gives us a clue into the first lie that all idols give us, but especially love. Okay? Now, now wait, before this, I, I want to tell you, like, I love Leah. In fact, you're going to he hear something pretty amazing about Leah later in this passage. But in the morning, it's always Leah. It's never Rachel. No matter what you put your hope in outside of God, in the morning, you will always be disappointed. That boyfriend or girlfriend that you're just dying to get, you will, will leave you empty. At night, it's Rachel, but in the morning, it's always Leah. Whatever you put your hope in, whether the, whatever part of love, whether it's marriage, you dating folks kind of think it's hard right now, but when we get married, then it'll be good. Then it'll be good. Just go talk to a married couple. 
At night it may be Rachel, but in the morning it's always Leah. Because everything outside of God himself will ultimately disappoint. Incidentally, this applies to every other idol. That job you think is going to solve all your problems and that job that finally is going to be the right job for you, in the morning, it'll be Leah. That relationship, that raise, once you, all, you need is, all you need is a few hundred more a month. And then your problems will be solved. In the morning, it's always Leah. Okay? And that's the first lie. That's the first lie that we, we need to understand about idols. Idols promise, but they don't deliver. They're Laban. They're Laban. They will promise and not deliver. Okay? So let's continue on with the story. See where it goes from here. Okay. Laban replied, it is not our custom here to give the younger daughter in marriage before the older one. And now I want to pause here, okay? Now, what's amazing about this phrase, and it loses it a little bit in the, the, the uh, English from the Hebrew, but here's what, what Laban actually says. Hey, Jacob, around here, we don't put the younger before the older. Now, if you remember about Jacob's family, Jacob was the younger. Esau was the older. Because when you read this story, you're like, why didn't Jacob protest? Surely there were some laws, something like he could go to a court, something. Why didn't Jacob protest? And I think it's because of that statement. Hey, Jacob, around here, we don't put the younger above the older. It works for my daughters, and it should be so for you. So I, th I think Laban just puts him in his place. Now let's continue. Finish this, finish this daughter's bridal week. Again, that whole week-long festivities. Okay? Then we will give you the younger one also in return for another seven years of work. And Jacob did so. He finished the week with Leah, and then Laban gave him his daughter Rachel to be his wife. Jacob made love to Rachel also, and his love for Rachel was greater than his love for Leah. And he worked for Laban another seven years. How tragic. And I don't, I don't know, for, for some, I mean, with a, a crowd this size, it's, I'm fairly confident that some of you grew up with, and your dad had a second wife. And I'm willing to bet he loved one of them more than the other. That's what it was with Jacob. So here is Leah, and this is where, the, it's just tragic, because here is Leah again being rejected by the man in her life. First it was her dad. She wasn't the pretty one. And now it is her husband who loved the second wife, who loved Rachel more than Leah. And it's just tragic. So now at this point, there's a little shift in the story, just a little shift. Okay? Let's continue. When the Lord saw that Leah was not loved, he enabled her to conceive. But Rachel remained child childless. Leah became pregnant and gave birth to a son. She named him Reuben. For she said, it is because the Lord has seen my misery. Surely my husband will love me now. 
If your heart isn't breaking right now for Leah, oh man, surely my husband will love me now. How many times have you done that? Surely my boyfriend will love me now. Surely, if I do this, surely my husband, surely my wife will love me now. If I'm just more responsible, surely my wife will love me now. I think think we all do that. Surely, if I'm a good enough son or daughter, surely my mom, my dad will be proud of me now. We all do that. And then what's interesting about this, her, her first kid, Reuben, Okay, Reuben in, in Jewish, uh, in, um, in Hebrew means to see. And she even says, you can even hear it in the statement, now maybe my husband will see me now that I gave him a son. Now, let's continue. She conceived again, and when she gave birth to a son, she said, because the Lord heard that I am not loved, he gave me this one too. My husband doesn't love me, so surely my son will. And so she named him Simeon. Now, Simeon in in Hebrew actually means to hear. Now, God will hear me. Now, my husband will hear me. I've given him another son. Again, she conceived. And when she gave birth to a son, she said, Now at last. My husband will become attached to me because I have borne him three sons. So he was named Levi. Now, Levi means attach. So now, do you see it? Now he'll see me. Now he'll hear me. Now he'll be attached to me. Can you hear Leah crying out now? He'll finally love me. Now my life will be complete. Now everything will be okay. And then something really interesting happens between this verse and the next verse. Because she has one more son. Well, let me read this to you. She conceived again, and when she gave birth to a son, she said, this time... I will praise the Lord. So she named him Judah, which means praise. Then she stopped having children. I would love to know what happened between these two verses. (laughs) Doesn't there seem like there should be a story there? Something happened that transformed Leah from this person desperate for her husband's love to this person who says, now, this time, I will praise the Lord. This time, it's different. This time, I will not be desperate. This time, it's not about my husband. This time, it's not about my kid. This time, my heart And my focus belonged to God. It's an amazing statement. She kind of comes out the hero of this story. 
And so what we see in Leah actually brings our second big lesson about idols. Okay, so for the first one is in the morning, remember in the morning, it's always Leah. It's never Rachel. It's never what you've put your hope in outside of God. But now Leah teaches us a second big principle about when love is an idol. The remedy for a love deficiency is not more love, but more God. The remedy of a love deficiency is not more love, but more God. Because God is the only person that can give you what you desperately want. God is the only person who can love you in a way that you really deeply long to be loved. A boyfriend won't solve that. A girlfriend won't solve that. A husband won't solve that. Wife won't solve that. Kids won't solve that. Being an auntie, a grandma, none of that will give you the love that you desperately need. Because a spouse can love you on one of their good days. But a spouse cannot give you significance. A spouse cannot give you worth. Children cannot make you valuable. Children cannot give you unconditional love. But all of that is what God gives you. And that's why the remedy for a love deficiency is not more love, but it's more of God. And in this whole story of Jacob, in this whole triangle of Jacob, Rachel, and Leah, Leah figured that out. She figured that out. So, so remember back to my, my three dates back in high school, my kind of disaster of a weekend, or at least disaster of a Monday? Well, there's a little more to that story. Because not long after that, I was floating on a river, with my youth pastor next to me, we were on a youth retreat, and we were floating on a little inflatable raft down a river. Okay? And now, my, my youth pastor, he, sort of, he knew my reputation. I had kind of made my way through the youth group. It was, it was a good thing it was a big youth group. <laughs> but he knew. And so at one point, he turned to me and said, Greg, you know what your problem is? You think with the seat of your pants. That's a really delicate way. You could kind of fill in a little bit harsher of a way to say that. (laughs) That statement has stuck with me 30 years later. I still remember that moment. And that single statement began a change in me. It began a change in how I looked at girls, how I looked at love. And I am indebted to my youth pastor for that because it came just in time because about a year later I met Pofoa I was in college and and had I not changed trajectory okay maybe not had I not changed trajectory how's that (laughs) okay (laughs) yeah let's not overdo this okay Um, it only been a year but had I not begun to shift I probably would have done to her on our first date what I did with a lot of the other girls. And that would have been tragic for me. 
So I'm indebted to my youth pastor for that river float that we had. So now if you can imagine, let's, let's float on a river together for a little bit, okay? Picture your favorite, go to the Mississippi, go to the St. Croix, get a couple inner tubes, let's float on down and have a little heart to heart, okay? Because some of you need to hear this. We're floating down the river, beautiful trees to the side, babbling brook, and I turn to you and say, I gotta be honest, you know what your problem is? You are desperate to be loved. You so desperately wanna be loved that you will do anything, and you will say anything, and you will compromise any boundary to be loved. Maybe, maybe it's the love you always wish your mom gave you. Maybe it's the pr- approval you always wished your dad gave you. But his approach was to be firm because it would make you tough and it would make you strong. And I would turn and say, you're desperate to be loved. And you're making some terrible choices because of it. So I want to speak to all the singles out there. Okay? For all you single folks, we're floating along the river. Nice, cool day. And I want to say to you, I know you long to be loved. But in your desperation for love, you're compromising your standards. You're compromising your body. You're wrecking your faith just to feel love from someone else. You don't need a boyfriend and girlfriend. You need more God. Okay, married couples, it's time for us to float. Okay, let's float on down the river. Cool day, splashing up in our face, starting to get sunburned on our backs. Okay, husband, wife, you're married, but you're still desperate for love. And you're trying to rip every ounce of love out of your spouse. And you are killing them. You're trying to pull from your husband and your wife what you should be receiving from God. And you are destroying them. You're looking to your spouse to make life okay. But as any of us who have been married for more than five minutes knows... (laughs) It doesn't work like that. You don't need a better husband. You need more God. You don't need a more loving wife. You need more God. And now to all of you, to the married and the couple, we got a gigantic raft army floating down. And here's what I want to say to you. If you've created a faith that involves going to church and being good, None of that will give you the love you desperately want. The only way to do that is with a personal, individual, intimate relationship with God. I love church. Don't get me wrong. But church can't love you the way you want to be loved. Church will disappoint you. And some of you are here at River Life because there was another church that disappointed you. And I hate to break it to you, 
But someday, if it hasn't happened already, river life will disappoint you. And you may go off to another church. Don't do that. So turn to God. You need, we need more God. I need more God. I don't need a more loving spouse. I have a wonderfully loving spouse. But I need more God. And so do you. Okay, we're at the end of the river now. We can hop into our car and head back home. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, we long for more of you. We acknowledge, we admit, we confess that you are the only one who can love us in the way we really want to be loved. You are the only one that can love me the way I really want to be loved. So God, love us in that way. God, open our hearts Tear down the idols. Break down the walls. Let us receive the love you, you desperately want to give us. God, help us. Prevent us. Stop us from destroying and hurting the people around us long, looking for the love that we, we really should turn to you for. Help us turn to you, Lord. Help us turn to you. And shower your love upon us. And I pray this in the name of Jesus Christ, the one who enabled us to receive your love and not your wrath. It is in that name in Jesus Christ I pray. Amen. Let's rise, church.